0: Hello and welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. As promised, we are returning for installment two of two in our sheep disease series with Dr. Rosie Bush, who is an extension veterinarian with UC Cooperative Extension. Last month, we discussed disease prevention. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I highly recommend it. But Dr. Bush has graciously agreed to return to our recording studio to answer our questions on disease treatment in the flock this time. Thanks for being back with us today, Dr. Bush. Yeah, thanks for having me,
1: Jake. It's great to be here.
0: I mean, you're in, you're in California. I'm in Texas. We're doing this online. We can call that a recording studio, right? Absolutely. <laughs> As we uh, jump into disease treatment, um, I want to start with kind of a 30,000-foot question. Broadly speaking, what are the key elements of successful disease treatment?
1: That's such a good question. Um, I think it's what makes us a little bit different from small animal vets and all this. Like Obviously, animal well-being and animal survival is a huge portion of disease treatment and what you expect as an outcome or what you're hoping for as a positive outcome. But with livestock, we also want an animal that is going to be able to maintain productivity. So I think that's another thing to consider when we're deciding if we should be treating an animal or not is what is this outcome? Yet, will she survive? Hopefully. But if she survives, is she going to be a productive
0: member of the group? So, right. Yeah. There's an economic side uh, in that equation. Sure. So going through all the symptoms of every disease sheep can contract is probably well, it's going to require more time than, than we've got today. But in general, what are some key signs that producers should look for or simple tests that they can conduct to identify sick sheep?
1: Yeah, that's a great. uh, So I think it kind of goes back to, and I know I said it in the last one, but I'll say it again, is we miss more by not looking than by not knowing. So just being out there and observing normal behavior of your sheep in your environment is probably the best way to be able to identify something that's just not right. You know, what you know, usually there are behavioral changes that happen first before we even notice what system might be affected. You know, lamenesses are probably the most obvious one because you're like, oh, okay, they've got a little head bob or they're pulling up their foot or they're laying on their knees. But even newer sheep producers might not know that eating on its knees means that its feet hurt. So just looking at normal sheep and becoming really familiar with what that looks like will really help us identify the first signs of disease, like I said, even before we know, okay, maybe it's respiratory
0: or GI or something like that. Right, absolutely. Uh, One of the things that, you know, I've always kind of struggled with uh, in with my own animals is being able to tell the difference between an animal that has a disease and one that has a deficiency in something. Do you have any advice on, on how to maybe differentiate those?
1: Yeah, that can be really challenging. Um, A lot of times we, animals will experience deficiencies actually before they get disease. Deficiencies typically of, you know, minerals, selenium, copper, zinc, all those, they can cause suppression of immune function. And so, you know, maybe we might not notice deficiencies, but we will certainly notice levels of disease. Um, And so, you know, maybe things to pick up on with deficiencies might be a little bit more subtle. So growth rate, maybe uh, outward appearance as far as, um, you know, how their hair coat looks or their wool, how that looks. Um, You know, I'm thinking the difference between hair sheep and wool sheep, they can be pretty challenging with looking at, you know, those types um, and how that, you know, that the nutrition impacts them. Um, but even just deficiencies in protein and energy can cause, you know, predispose them to diseases. Um, but even that said, I was thinking toxicities, uh, plant toxicities, or things like that can often look like different diseases. And so those can be pretty challenging just from, you know, that standpoint of observing something abnormal, how to know when it might be something that's actually caused by a contagious or pathogen or a bacterial pathogen.
0: Yeah. Well, I've asked these questions here to kind of start off with because while the the podcast is about uh, treatment, I feel like it's important to be able to diagnose what the problem is before we apply the, the proper treatment. Absolutely. Uh, and so my next, my next question is one that as sheep farmers, we all have dealt with in, in one shape or, or another, but, uh, while we can always, you know, take a, a sheep to a veterinarian to have a detailed necropsy done, if we found a dead animal, uh, Do you have any suggestions for producers who may want to look into doing a a field necropsy? What should producers kind of do to uh, be successful with that?
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes this comes down to scale and goals. Like smaller flocks may have an opportunity to take an individual, you know, like if they're seed stock flocks and they have high genetic value, they might have opportunities to take individuals into a veterinarian. And another Test. I forgot that you said test in the last question, but another thing that you can do to help identify if this is something that would benefit from an antibiotic or is to take a simple temperature. A rectal temperature can really help see if it's an infectious cause. It doesn't necessarily tell us if it's bacteria versus viral, but usually it kind of gets us down that path a little bit closer. Um when we have more animals and we're losing animals, that's when the necropsy becomes really valuable. Cause like you said, it's really important to kind of figure out what we're up against so that we can address this problem immediately in the flock and try to stop losing animals in these, in this group. So, um, you know, there are ways to do field necropsies. Um, we've done, uh, I think a, a number of folks do field necropsy workshops across the country, um, and it's it's not a difficult th- you know task to perform. I think the hardest thing again is knowing normal from abnormal, because you know we're pretty good at seeing the outside of our sheep, but seeing the inside is a whole nother story.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, and then the other difficulty is stopping and taking the time to do it. So I know we've trained a number of folks to do these necropsies and, you know, I'll joke with them about how that's been going. And it's every time they have a death, it's always at an untimely point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's hard, yeah, to set that time away and open them up. But so their field necropsies, though, I think are hugely valuable. Um, And you know, it's one of those things, the more you do, the more things you'll, you'll see the things that really stand out. Um, The downside of field necropsies, I will say, if you're just opening them to see what organs might be affected or what major causes are, is you're going to see the obvious cause of death, right? So if it had pneumonia, you're going to see pneumonia, but you If you're not sending in liver samples for minerals or you're not sending in lung tissue for histology where they look at it under a microscope, we may miss underlying conditions like mineral deficiencies or OPP infections that led to, or viral infections in general, that may have led to what ultimately caused the demise of this animal. But if, you know, we're looking at immediately what's cause of death, that can help, right? Because if I'm looking at bacterial pneumonia as the ultimate cause of death, then I know, okay, I, I kind of know my first steps at controlling the losses within that group.
0: Okay. Well, I want to go back to something you said there. Uh, if somebody, you know, does uh, unfortunately have a dead animal and they want to do a little field necropsy, but they want some further information about uh, a diagnosis of, of disease or, or something else that's going on, what tissue uh, should they take samples from or, you know, can they take some pictures of some organs to share with their veterinarian or diagnostic lab to have some some further information uh, yeah. on, on the Acc- equation?
1: There are a couple of states have some pretty great resources for sending in tissues from a field necropsy, and I know California and Cornell, in particular, they charge the same rate as you would for sending in a full necropsy, um, but you get the benefit of being able to ship them in a small box.
0: <laughs> sure, there you go.
1: So, um, but yeah, so the, one of the I think one, some of the great recommendations are one to take a picture of the animal where it died so you can see kind of did it struggle does it have any fluids being lost out of it and those that full picture really helps build the story for what happened with this animal Um, and then you know definitely taking pictures of ID pictures of teeth and then as you open it just general pictures of the organ systems samples that are good to take just in general obviously if there's any organs that look abnormal it's good to take obviously samples of the abnormal tissue, but it's also good to have normal tissue in there. Um, Sometimes the abnormal tissue is so abnormal that the pathologists (laughs) have no idea what they're looking at. They're like, so labeling is also important.
0: (laughs) There we go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, But liver, lung, kidney, um, those are probably the most common tissues to take. GI is always good if you're suspicious of a GI abnormality, but I wouldn't say that it's absolutely necessary in all cases. A pathologist listening to this is going to yell at me, but <laughs> but there are lists of what organs you should collect, yeah, and they okay. can just be put into little Ziploc bags and then put into um, that are sealed, um, and then they can be put into like a cooler type shipper um, and okay. sent to the diagnostic lab.
0: Sure. Uh, any precautions we should take uh, against, you know, while we're doing this uh, against potential zoonotic diseases while we're, you know, out in the field?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, working with sheep and goats, we're probably all pretty familiar with zoonotic diseases. I think the most important time is around lambing. Um, that said, there are diseases like anthrax that if it is the cause of death of the animal, opening that animal actually can, you know, basically be an, an a source of environmental contamination. Um, right. So there are ways to kind of visually assess if the animal may have died of anthrax, if there was blood coming from any of the orifices, or there's like a little rectal pinch test that you can do. And if it bleeds from that, then probably shouldn't open that animal.
0: Okay. Good to know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, But for PPE, yeah, I guess, you know, making sure that you can be as clean as possible. If gloves are available, that's always good. But I always get messy everywhere. So just making sure you're able to clean before you go home or change clothes. If that's something that is allowed, you know, available, then that's probably a good idea.
0: Okay. Back to discussion on uh, live animals here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any particular new technology uh, that maybe you've heard of recently uh, or are aware of that's being developed to aid in disease detection on the farm?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of technologies that I don't know how new they are. I know they've been investigated for at least a decade, but things like, um, oh gosh, like thermal videography, um, and a lot of those are kind of more available in confined spaces so if we're doing confinement feeding at feedlots or in barn housing then there are cameras that can basically look at the core temperature or the external temperature of um sheep and so based on that how that changes throughout the day they can maybe determine if the animal has a fever um things like that um I think things that might be more broadly accessible would be um, pedometers or accelerometers or um, those kinds of things that track animal movement and behavior. Those things are, you know, probably pretty good at detecting changes. and. I don't know if they're better than the shepherd's eye, right? Like if we're out there every day looking at them anyway, then we might actually be able to perceive them. And it would be interesting to compare those two, you know, between an experienced herder or shepherd and the AI or the computer (laughs) and how well they're able to do that. But yeah.
0: Yeah, that is it. That is an interesting thought. Okay. So uh, to the, to the treatment side of our discussion, uh, You know, one of the first things that we often think about when we see a a sick sheep is maybe it needs an antibiotic. Can you describe for us how an antibiotic works once it's inside of the body?
1: Yeah, that's There, so that we don't have a ton of antibiotics that we can use in livestock. Um, a lot of the ones that we do use are a little bit older. Uh, I think the newest antibiotic that we have available to us are the I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like Draxin and Gamithromycin and those types of antibiotics, the macrolide class. Um, but those, you know, we've had those since the 90s and, um, So, but they all kind of work in different ways. They, some of them are, um, have, let's say they penetrate into the body differently. So either they're water soluble or lipid soluble. So it basically means they have access to different tissues at different levels, Um, And then basically, once they get to those tissues, they kind of go all throughout the body. And if there happens to be bacteria there, they also have different ways of affecting bacteria. So the oldest antibiotic we have is penicillin. And that antibiotic um, interferes with cell wall synthesis. Well, not all bacteria have cell walls. Sure. So, you know, if we have a gram-negative bacteria without a cell wall, it's not super effective against those. And actually most, I mean, there's a lot of bacteria that, that cause pneumonia, for example, that are gram-negative bacteria and don't have cell walls. So something like penicillin might not be the best first choice for those type of bacterial infections.
0: Sure. Well, I, I'm curious because, you know, we do see some different product, you know, trade names, uh, penicillin, uh, LA two hundred, Draxon, like you mentioned. And one of the first things you notice is there's a huge price gap between, yeah. uh, or price differences between. Them. And so I'm wondering, you know, uh, you, you explain that there are some differences. Is it is it the how new those products are that helps influence the cost of them, or, or the price of them, or uh, the effectiveness of it? Uh, why is there such a big big difference there?
1: Yeah, I. Th- The price gap is mostly because of how new, and so the regulatory burden that they had to overcome to become a licensed product in the U.S. So penicillin LA two hundred have been around for decades and decades. (laughs) So those are that's why there's such lower um, cost, and there are differences between them as far as like what, like I said before, what types of bacteria they. you know, affect our newer antibiotics like new fluoroquinolones tend to be broad spectrum, so they will probably wipe out almost any bacteria that they come across, which has its pluses and minuses. You know, so yeah,
0: yeah. So you brought up penicillin last month. I-, I asked a question as we were finishing out that podcast to uh, tease this episode, uh, and you you talked about penicillin dosage on the label and, and how maybe that's not the best thing to follow. So can you update us on on and give us some, you know, a nugget of veterinary advice here and, and what should we be doing if we were going to use penicillin?
1: So penicillin, like we said, has been licensed in the U S for a long, long time since like the sixties for livestock medicine. And um, so the dose that's on that label is probably what was effective a long time ago oh, yeah. um, and bacterial populations have become more and more resistant to it and so now the effective dose of penicillin is like tenfold higher <laughs> than the <laughs> labeled dose um, so it's yeah I think it depends there are different dose regimes that can be given um, there's like 22,000 IUs Per kilogram body weight, on oh, no, there you or you could do twice that, and so there's different dosages that are appropriate for different diseases and different animal species, even. But they're all extra label, and so as far as you know, f- legally to use drugs extra labelly, we need to have a veterinarian give that. Basically, that dosage prescription or, you know, oversight of the use of that drug extra labelly. And then it's their liability that is basically covering the extra label use of those drugs.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, When might it be incorrect, though, to administer an antibiotic to a sick sheep?
1: Yeah. So. When let's say if we're giving antibiotics to animals that were I'd I say the the biggest challenge that I've seen with antibiotics given when they shouldn't be is either GI disease. So if we have um you know, either it was a nutritional upset or we have some parasitism, if we're giving antibiotics on top of that, like I said, some of the, especially these newer antibiotics can really wipe out a lot of bacteria. And ruminants depend on bacteria in their GI tract. And so even though we're not giving these antibiotics orally, because these newer antibiotics can penetrate through cells so well, it does definitely deplete their kind of GI flora, and when they already yep. have, you know, gastric upset, that can be that can be further challenging to their recovery time. The other things that I've seen that are um, probably or definitely inappropriate is when we're giving different types of antibiotics back to back. You know, we get one day we say, okay, we're going to start with LA and see if it helps, and then we only give it twenty four hours. And then we're like, well, it's not better. Let's give it some new floor. And then we only give it another 24 hours and we say, okay, now Draxin. Like (laughs) it's really hard on animals and actually can cause, um, Other issues, I've seen a number of animals that have been dosed like that, and then they end up with fungal infections because there's no bacteria to help control the fungal population, and we have no legal fungicides that we can use in livestock medicine, so you pretty much just wiped out all the bacteria in that animal and have a whole nother problem that we can't. (laughs) So, and I have seen that a number of times. So antibiotics, I would not say is something where if a little is good, more is better. I think, you know, like we definitely have to take a little bit of a back, like a step back, look at the whole picture, really assess what might be going on here if it's not responding to antibiotics and have, you know, that's where if you have protocols with your vet set up, you know, absolutely. If it looks like what we've, you know, like you were talking about identifying disease. So we've gotten good at identifying disease. We have a protocol with our vet. This looks like what we ought to be doing. Well, if it doesn't respond, that's when we have another conversation with the vet. Okay. I followed the protocol. It's not working. <laughs> <Right>. What now? <laughs> yeah. So,
0: yeah. Plan B. Yeah. Yep. W- what about age uh, of a sheep? You know, is there... Uh, a low, particularly a lower limit? I, I mean, do we want to give antibiotics to really young lambs?
1: Um, man, that's tough because lambs are so susceptible to disease. If there's a problem and they would benefit from antibiotics, then that's where we need to be really strategic and use antibiotics that are going to be really specific to that disease that we're observing. Um, there are... It is interesting. There are age differences as far as dosing goes for some antibiotics. um, I would say the ceftifures is an example because they're water soluble and lambs have more body water per kilogram than. Yeah. So, you know, as far as drug distribution goes, that does have a dosing effect, but. Unfortunately, we have some limitations with extra label drug use with some of those drugs. So it makes it challenging to be able to give an effective dose yeah. for our younger aged animals. So taking that into consideration, we might use other antibiotics that might be more effective in younger animals, but also knowing they're developing their rumen, their, you know, GI tracts are Particularly sensitive, so they might be one that I'd really want to know what I'm up against before I decided to select an antibiotic.
0: Okay, I- I'm going to give you a-, a scenario later on, and so we're going to circle back to that. Okay, okay. Uh, you-, you mentioned some of the the you know potential drawbacks that could happen in the GI tract when uh, an animal's given an antibiotic. Any other side effects that um, you know we should be aware of, uh, or if if we give an animal or a sheep an antibiotic, what what might happen?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think, like I said, the GI effects are probably the most common. Um, sulfas, which we do tend to use a lot in livestock, um, it's in small animals, they have TMS, which is trimethoprim sulfa. And they basically say the acrom- acronym is for too many side effects. So, yeah. <laughs> sulfas do tend to have side effects. Um, They can cause increased photosensitization. So you might see more sunburns and things like that. Um, But so certainly there are other side effects that you'd want to be aware of. Injection site reactions can certainly happen. Um, Even abscesses, which is a little bit, you know, counterintuitive when you're giving an antibiotic. Um, But yeah, so certainly... There are risks to giving an antibiotic, which is another reason why, you know, just want to make sure that it's absolutely necessary in a case before we give antibiotics.
0: And I'm sure this is a a case by case situation, but should we, uh, or should antibiotics be combined with, you know, some other therapeutic or a probiotic in in the case of maybe uh, GI problems to help improve the overall treatment?
1: Yeah, that's uh, – so there are studies that look at kind of time to recovery for um, – most of these studies are in cattle, but cattle with pneumonia, and that's why there are drugs like Resflor, and I think there's even a – I don't know the common name for it, but there's another – there's a macrolide class with a, um, like, banamine like substance in it Mm -hmm. um, that help that they've shown if you're able to reduce the inflammation that all it helps and bring the animal um, back to food faster and just increase their ability to recover Um, so certainly depending on you know, how sick the animal is giving something like an anti-inflammatory can really help. Um, the caveat to that is that, and I know, um, you know, Hopefully, if they're feeling better, they'll eat and drink more. But if they're really dehydrated, those anti-inflammatories can be pretty hard on their kidneys. Um, so if we're not giving fluids or drenching them or something like that to help with their recovery, then those anti-inflammatories can actually do more harm than good. So, But that would be another sort of, um, I guess not therapeutic, I guess it's a therapeutic, but another treatment that could go with antibiotics that would go a long way is fluid therapy. Um, yep. And that's definitely been shown to be true for animals with diarrhea, obviously, because they're losing a lot of fluids. Um, but any other disease where they're not eating, they're not drinking as well. Um, so fluids can really help their recovery. And especially when you think about it, these antibiotics were giving in one spot and you need good blood flow in order for that antibiotic yep. to be delivered. To where you need it to go. So really, making sure the animals aren't super dehydrated, um, getting them on feed and onto water, or making sure water is close and available to sick animals um, is really important. Um, probiotics, I think, are good, but they pretty much have to be given every day if they're going to be effective. So, especially in the face of antibiotics, they'll yeah kind of be succumb to the same fate
0: as our yeah. GI microbes. <laughs> okay, so, fair enough.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, you, you you mentioned inflammation, uh, and I'd like to ask you how corticosteroids work, and and you know under what conditions they are the the best option to treat an animal.
1: Yeah. So, corticosteroids are like um, <laughs> flu nixon, but on steroids. Is that okay to say? <laughs> <laughs> so when sure. you say something's on steroids, it's just going to have a big effect, right? Yeah. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Banamine, um, banamine disrupts the inflammatory cascade at a lower point in the cascade than steroids do. Steroids affects the inflammatory cascade almost at the very top, if that makes sense, like the origin of this inflammatory ca- inflammatory cascade. Um, so when we give corticosteroids, it has a huge effect, um, which is good in some cases. Um, in some cases, uh, for example, my mein- hemolytica, that might be a bacteria most people have heard of with sheep. It causes pneumonia. It can cause blue bag. That bacteria is so just nasty. It, it, recruits inflammatory cells just so it can annihilate them (laughs) and so that all the inflammation is doing more damage than the bacteria itself if that makes sense so in some of those cases giving something like a corticosteroid can actually be really helpful in minimizing the severity of that disease um but in other cases it can, corticosteroids have an immunosuppressive effect because it's higher up on that inflammatory cascade. So in some cases, we actually want the immune system to function because most of our antibiotics don't actually kill bacteria. They just stop the growth of bacteria. And we expect the immune system to come in and clean up. So if we're suppressing the immune system and giving an antibiotic that doesn't actually kill bacteria, then it's it's probably going to be a little bit harder to clean up that infection that's going on. So, corticosteroids are good in some cases, but maybe not super helpful in all cases.
0: Sure. So, you know, the immunosuppressant, is that the major... You know, quote unquote, side effect of uh, uh, these anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, even dexamethasone or or something like that.
1: Yeah, um, immunosuppression they have the same impact on kidneys like flunixin because again, it's the same cascade, just higher up. So, kidney um, challenges usually only if the animal's dehydrated. Normal animals that are not dealing with dehydration don't have the same kidney problems, but obviously we're not giving steroids to normal animals in this case. So yeah, yeah, always something to be, keep in mind and make sure the animal's drinking and the urine looks like a nice dilute color. If you see an animal peeing and it's brown or red, that's a big problem. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so we often think about when we deliver medication to our sheep that we're going to give them a, a shot. But there are some options where it can be uh, you know, delivered in the feed or even in the water. What are the differences in how the animal takes in uh, that product and how it may affect them or how successful it may be in, in the treatment?
1: Yeah, those, that's a good question. And I'll never forget, I was in a meeting and there was someone, you know, I used to work for the state and worked on antibiotic issues quite a bit. And there was someone like, I can't believe that you put antibiotics in animal feed. Like, who would do that? My children. Yeah. I wouldn't put it in their cereal. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> yeah. It's just another route of administration. We, right. like, almost always give our children oral antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe not in their cereal, but I have definitely put yeah. it in applesauce before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just had to tell that story. I think it's so yeah. funny because when we think of animals, we're not think. you know, when we think of putting antibiotics in feed, we're like, oh my gosh, this must be a daily thing. No, it's just a different route of administration. But one of the important things with that is we're feeding ruminants. So We have to recognize that not all antibiotics are therapeutically effective when given orally at Mm -hmm. all doses. So um, when we're giving antibiotics in feed, we need to consider, you know, how well it will be absorbed and what impact that might have on the rumen. So that's why we tend to give most antibiotics through an injection because it has better availability to the animal. But antibiotics like sulfa are pretty darn effective given orally. So yeah.
0: Okay. But on on injections, you know, what about subcutaneous versus intramusculars uh, injections? Yeah, what's the difference there?
1: Yeah. So the main difference is um so there's um the whole science behind how drugs are distributed through the body and the main difference between those two tissues is blood supply so the muscle obviously has a higher blood supply than just between the skin and the muscle or in that fascial plane where it's mostly connective tissue and so when you give a injection in the muscle it's absorbed faster um, but it might not last as long um, and then a lot of these drugs are actually labeled for one or the other or both. And if they have both, you'll notice that the withdrawal period is different for two of them. And that's because when we're giving it subcutaneously, it just resides in that space for longer. It's taken up slower. It might last longer. And so the body clears it slower. So it is important to recognize that, especially when we're using these drugs off label, that they could have very different withdrawal periods from what's actually written on the label. Okay.
0: So what are the preferred injection sites, either for subcutaneous or, or intramuscular injections for, for sheep?
1: Yeah, most of them are subcutaneous. Uh-huh. Um, so I think I think a lot of that is just ease of administration. Um, there aren't a ton of um, muscular intramuscular spaces for us to use. It's, you know, for an animal that's used for meat consumption, we have fewer blemishes in the meat product. Uh Um, You know, the neck is a saleable piece of meat for lamb. And so, you know, that's something that we don't really want to blemish. So under the skin leaves fewer scars, basically, of the carcass. And so I think that's why that's a really prominent site for giving injections.
0: Okay. Uh, And... You know needle size is that part of that decision equation. Um, you know what? What is the preferred needle size? I guess when we're giving an injection to a sheep.
1: Yeah, as, definitely. I think needle length is really important. So I tend to use an inch or less, um, and that's because the longer they are, um, you know, the more likely we are to get to, un, into the muscle, and then actually they have you know more of a kind of fulcrum for breaking and yep. needle breaking is a huge contamination problem for meat animals in general. Um, so something that we want to be really aware of for meat quality, um, as far as gauge, it just depends on what drug we're giving and how thick the drugs are.
0: Yeah. So. Play it, play it by ear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I am going to, to try something new here. Uh, you know, ranching, farming, sheep production. Uh, yeah, sometimes it comes down to a real world, split second decision that that producer or owner has to make uh, right there on the spot. And in our, our podcast here, we can't you know realistically cover everything regarding disease in, in sheep. So I, I would like to describe for you. Uh, Some common scenarios that maybe some of us have been in. Uh, Maybe I'm drawing from personal experience. I don't know. And I'd like to get your rapid fire response on whether the producer should do this or that. Uh, and I realized this might be a veterinarian's worst nightmare because I'm only going to give you about one sentence of a description here. Uh, and so I realized this is maybe putting you in an uncomfortable spot. And I apologize ahead of time. But I think this will be fine. Yeah. Okay. This is like the typical, since you're here, doc. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Here's my first one. Uh, I have a sheep and it has an abscess under its ear. Do I, or do I not drain that abscess?
1: Um, Yes, but... (laughs) (laughs)
0: I feel like we're going to hear that a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want it contained so I can dispose of all the abscess contents. I want it cleaned and disinfected and flushed. And because very likely an abscess under the ear is a contagious uh, bacteria called carini or CL we call it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, great to lance them in a controlled setting because if you don't, it's going to pop who knows where. <laughs> up. Yeah. Yep.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. Here comes the next one. I am hoping to turn Rams out with the use next week and I've got them up and I noticed that one of them has this big infected cut on the top of his head and it smells really terrible. Do I give him an injectable antibiotic or do I treat that with a topical of some kind?
1: Both. No. <laughs> No, uh, again, it depends if he's eating and otherwise acting normal. And he probably got this from, you know, fighting with other rams. Ram behavior. Yeah, he's probably fine. Then you can probably get away with topicals. But that said, I would certainly put a fly spray on this for sure. Because okay. that's going to be one that'll make it worse before it gets better. So
0: Okay. yeah, All right. I have next one. I, I have a sheep that is clearly wormy. But she also appears to have uh, kind of a respiratory infection also, really rough breathing. Do I treat one or both of those conditions right then and there?
1: Yeah, this one's challenging because we have a GI issue with a bacterial infection. But You know, usually we see one of these kind of leading up to the other. So, wormy sheep aren't getting enough nutrition. And so, it's probably what put her in a deficient status. So, now she's dealing with pneumonia. In this case, I'd certainly treat both.
0: Treat both. Okay. Yep. Okay. Here comes the next one. Uh, This is uh, uh, goes back to what we discussed earlier. I've got a young lamb. And uh, just a you know a few days old or a week old or something, and it has swelling in uh, its front the joint in its front leg, its knee. Do or do I not treat that with an antibiotic?
1: This one's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) So. Swollen (laughs) joints in lambs, super common. The challenging part of it is it could be from navel ill from its environment. Uh So, usually those are gram-negative bacteria. It could be from chlamydia, which is a gram-positive, and those are intracellular bacteria. Or it could be mycoplasma, which is totally (laughs) different. And. You know, so that's one where I really want to know what it is, and because okay. you're probably going to see this in a lot of lambs, and that's like what we said when we're treating young lambs, we want to make sure we pick the right antibiotic because if we're using big guns or those like you know New Floor, whichever I lo- I like New Floor, it's an incredible antibiotic, but. Who it'll wipe out a young lamb's GI tract. So if we give every young lamb new floor, that's going to be a challenge for those guys. And who knows if they're even going to recover kind of a thing. So that's where I really want to know what's going on in these joints. And then, you know, one, make a prevention plan for next year. But two, we'll have a really good target for this year's problem.
0: Okay. So before I go to the next scenario, I would like to ask you: Do I draw some of that fluid out of that swelling, or do you know I wait till maybe I've had a lamb that's you know passed away and, and send that on to a diagnostic lab? What what should I do as a producer there to figure out what the, what's going on?
1: Um, you can absolutely draw fluid out of that swelling. We've had um, I've been able to work with producers on actually flushing those joints. And usually if you flush those joints and give an antibiotic, that's when we have the best success. Um, but before we keep we flush, we submit that fluid. The challenge is with chlamydia, it can be hard to diagnose chlamydia on f- joint fluid alone because it's so cell-associated. Yeah. So we might get a diagnosis off of that, but we might not. And if we don't, then if we don't get response to therapy, that's when we submit for necropsies.
0: Okay. Okay. Here's the next one. Here's probably the one that I would draw from my own experience. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm out in the field all alone, and I've caught a sheep that is breathing really rough, and, and you know has all the signs of a sick animal: droopy ears, et cetera, et cetera. I grab a bottle of La 200 out of the truck, and it's extremely dark in color. Uh, it's been expired for a while. Do I or do I not give that sheep an injection of that antibiotic? <laughs>
1: this one's so hard. <laughs> oh, I know. I've been in that spot before <laughs> and not at the university, obviously. No. Oh, yeah, uh, of course not. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, I mean, i if it's all I had and there was no way I was going to be able to get back to her, I yeah. – honestly yeah, like, all
0: alone in the field miles and miles away from headquarters
1: reality versus what i should be saying
0: yeah, yeah i
1: like again if it was my animal i i would give her the benefit of the shot knowing that with an expired antibiotic its efficacy goes way down now am i gonna just double the dose of LA? Heck no, because LA, again, can be really hard on kidneys. And I don't know what its efficacy is because it's just an expired bottle. It's not like it has a little ticker tape that goes down as it loses (laughs) efficacy. So yeah, that one's tough. Um, But there are ways to... I was talking with the producer the other day. They have this new app that they're really excited about, and it actually does have the ability to... Keep drug inventories, and every time you give—if you're keeping individual animal data—every time you give an antibiotic, it actually takes it out of your drug inventory. And so it's kind of neat that some of those things are available now. A lot of that's because other countries they have to, so that sort those sort of tools are available to us. Um, but yeah, that's a tough one. That okay?
0: <laughs> you're, well, you're, you're being a good sport about it, so I appreciate it. Okay, we'll move on. I've Next one. I've got a you that lamb this morning at let's say eight o'clock. Uh, it's now one p.m. after lunch, and she hasn't passed her, you know, our afterbirth yet. Do I or do I not catch her and you know try to get that out and treat her with an antibiotic? It's been okay. five hours.
1: Five hours. Well, I'm going to go back to the other question because I thought of something
0: else. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So one thing that should be mentioned is if we give an antibiotic before we submit samples or animals to necropsy, we could mess up our necropsy results, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. So if I have a pistol in my truck... I may decide, hey, I've seen a couple other of these. I'm going to sacrifice her, bring her in for a necropsy. And so if I just, if I (laughs) just, so that's another option. Just that I'd, yeah, Yeah, no, that's good. That's
0: good. That's, no, I understand. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay. Retain placenta. It's been there for five hours. Um, I personally would catch her retained placentas to me can mean a number of things in litter bearing species. It could truly be a retained placenta and that is a problem. Um, Mm. or it could be a retained fetus and I have seen a number of those. So I would catch her cleaner up palpator. If I don't feel anything then, and even if I do feel something, I'm pulling it
0: in both cases,
1: I would give an antibiotic for sure.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. Last one. And this is kind of a three parter here. I've got a ewe with a month-old lamb, and the lamb actually looks to be in decent health, uh, but the ewe has a, a hard bag and is, sh- you know, showing signs of mastitis. Do I or do I not give the ewe an antibiotic? Do I or do I not wean the lamb immediately? And do I or do I not keep that ewe in the flock for future breeding years?
1: So this is another (laughs) scenario where if I just give an antibiotic and she doesn't recover, I may have ruined my chances of getting any kind of diagnosis. So a lot of times with dairy animals – if we find an animal with mastitis, we'll take a sample and then we'll give the mm-hmm. protocol treatment. And that sample goes sure. in the freezer. We don't have to submit it right away because what if she recovers? Great. I don't care. No, <laughs> not that I don't care, yeah. but it was something I had a protocol for ahead of time. Uh-huh. Um, so now in this case, you've probably got a protocol with your vet. Okay, it's mastitis. I'm going to take a sample, save it to put it in the freezer or in my cooler for now, freeze it later. And then I would give her an antibiotic based on that. Protocol that I have with non-dairy animals, we benefit from being able to give an injectable antibiotic and choosing an antibiotic that actually penetrates the mammary gland, and you get really good drug distribution in the mammary gland because we're not worried about milk withdrawals. That's not as much of a concern. Um, so those antibiotics can be pretty effective, um, and there's a number of different choices that you know you might discuss with your veterinarian for what types of mastitis we're seeing, if. Um, if it doesn't respond, maybe it's something more chronic like carini. We see, you know, unfortunately, a fair bit of carini mastitis. Um, in those cases, you know, those look very different. Um, whether we wean the lamb now or not, I I don't usually wean lambs immediately. If she has twins, absolutely remove one of them. That's kind of my rule of thumb. Um, but usually having a lamb on the you can help keep milk flowing Um, because if we dried her off right now her chances of recovering with just milk sitting in the gland is a little bit more challenging Um, and that's why kind of that that weaning period is really important for sheep Um, so I'd probably leave the lamb on if the lamb's doing really well I might if possible segregate them because that lamb can become a vector for spreading mastitis to other sheep because if it is starving yeah It's getting milk from someone.
0: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: it's probably passing whatever it's got in its mouth from her to other ewes. So if possible, isolate those. Um, And then if she recovers, you know, potentially if it wasn't, you know, maybe if she just had a little bit of inflammation but not enough to scar the mammary gland, then she could go back into production if we caught it early enough. Um, But that would be one that you'd want to flag for really having a good palpation or, you know, bag check at weaning to see. How she
0: would do excellent. Well, well, thank you. That that was good. Thank you. It wasn't really fire, fire. but you know, no, no, that's good. (laughs) I I know you're probably dreading this portion of the podcast, (laughs) so uh, we're we're done. I'll I'll tell you that. We're no more questions. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) No, that was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, but you know, in a nod to the scenarios that I described to you, not in a very comprehensive way, uh, what. You know, are, are there some references or a book or a website or an app uh, that producers should be aware of and try to keep handy to answer, you know, these kind of immediate she- sheep health questions or problems they might have?
1: Yeah. I'm just looking in my office. I have one book that it's small, but it has a lot of the most common diseases. Um, hold on. Let me grab it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the Sheep or Gates Practical Guide to Sheep Disease Management. Um, it's it's a third edition. It's been um, Pipestone Veterinary Clinic has had okay. its hand in editing this edition. Um, it's a good small guide for common sheep diseases. Um, it's a nice one just to get, you know, a good idea, not too much information, but enough information about what's going on and what can be done to control and prevent these things, as well as what practical treatments might be. That said, I think your veterinarian is probably yeah. your most knowledgeable resource that you can ask questions to and you know that maybe these books can't answer Um, so and they are usually connected to a network of other veterinarians and other producers and so they have some more lived experiences that can benefit your not only the health of your sheep but kind of the productivity of your operation
0: okay okay Excellent. All right, we, we've we've used up probably most of our time, uh, but this has been really good. Uh, and so, just as a, a final, you know, kind of question here, can you leave our our listeners and our audience with a single piece of advice, uh, a takeaway message from our discussion today?
1: Talk to your vet. <laughs> <laughs> No. um. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, read the labels. Absolutely. They're so important. But know that sheep are not on the labels for so many of the drugs that we have. And so having those protocols with your vet is so important just so we don't get drug residues so that our antibiotics are effective like we expect them to be. Um, and so that we're making treatment decisions that make sense. So our animal, you know, if our animals have um, productivity in these, the outcome of the treatment, that should be one of our goals for sure.
0: Okay. Excellent. (laughs) Well, like I said, this has been fun and I, and you're a, you know, a great friend to our show and, and I always get really positive feedback uh, when you've been on the podcast. So thank you again, uh, for coming on for I think this is the fourth time now. So yeah, uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) thank you, Jake. It's so fun.
0: Uh, listeners, don't worry uh, while we are closing the proverbial chapter on our flock health miniseries for now. Uh, we will be back next month with a new episode of the Research Update podcast. Uh, but until next time, eat lamb, wear wool, and uh, remember, if you finish your sheep chores before the midday heat, I have heard a rumor that you can spend the afternoon catching up on our ASI podcast by the pool and consider it a full day's work. Just a rumor, of course. Have a good day.